First Timothy chapter 6, 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we come before your word this morning here in 1 Timothy and place ourselves under it, we pray that you would help us, that your spirit would be here, your spirit would be working in our hearts individually to give attention to what you have to say. Oh Lord, we recognize that there are so many messages, so many words we hear throughout each week from a world that has rejected you, a world that is seeking to live apart from you. We pray, Father, that you would help us now to recognize here is truth, here is life, here are the words of the God who has made us and redeemed us in Christ. May we listen and may your spirit continue to change our lives through your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Last year, we as a church began to financially support a church in Nigeria, uh, which uh, is made up of, of many converts from Islam. The church leads an elementary school and uh, has uh, recently begun a Bible college to help to train young men to be pastors and evangelists there in uh, Nigeria, and I regularly keep in touch with Pastor uh, Abraham, uh, who leads the church. Keep in touch with him through the, through the WhatsApp, uh, texting uh, back and forth, and he sends me pictures of uh, some of the things that they used, the uh, funds that we sent them, so some of the things that they purchased with those funds, and uh, lets me know kind of uh, what's going on there, and, and we also share prayer requests with one another, um, and just a couple weeks ago, he sent me a message and asked how we were doing here, and I, I told him that, well, it was, it was planting season, and uh, we were praying for rain. Um, and since he and his church uh, are in Nigeria, in Central Africa, they're just north of uh, the equator, um, very different climate there than it is here, he asked uh, if we were in our rainy season, um, and uh, when, when the rainy season usually begins for us, and uh, I you know, kind of said, well, you know, we usually do uh, get some rain in, in April and May, and, and uh, uh, that's when we really hope to have some rain, um, but we had been in a drought for some time, and, and so it had been very, very dry, and, and so he assured me that he and his church would be praying for us, and I thanked him and then asked how we could pray uh, for them, and I uh, wanted to share with you his, his response uh, to my uh, question. He said, we have security challenges. Herdsmen clash with farmers, killing one another. People live in fear in their communities. There are issues of kidnapping of people, ransom demanded. 
We also have a similar rain situation with you. Thank you as you pray for us. So that was a little humbling for me to read. For at the time, my biggest concern was for farmers in my church that they would get a little bit of rain, while his main concern was that the folks within his church would not be killed or kidnapped. Back in January, uh, Pastor Abraham asked me to pray for a young man named Lawan, who had recently converted from Islam to follow Christ, and he asked me specifically that the Lord may keep him away from his people who would like to kill him, pray that he may get rooted in the Lord and continue to grow in him, pray for Christians around him to be examples for him. And thankfully, uh, recently Pastor Abraham shared with me that, that Lawan is doing, doing very well and growing in the Lord. But my relationship with Pastor Abraham has made it more and more clear to me that the world in which we live is a world that's not safe to be a Christian. It's not physically safe to be a Christian in Nigeria and in many parts of Africa. It's not safe to be a Christian here in the United States as well. Not, not spiritually safe, particularly here. For both the believers in uh, Nigeria and the U.S. are strong threats. Um, there, there are strong threats to our faith in both places. Believers have powerful enemies. We are under attack. They may not be threatening to do physical harm to us here in the United States yet, but the enemies of, of, of truth and the gospel control the media. They control public education especially the universities. They control our federal government, many state governments here as well. They control the grand majority of the corporations of our land. So we are living in embattled times. Uh, It can really seem like we are up against the world, and that is why it is so crucial for us and for every church and church leader to engage in the fight. Now, I'm not referring to anything physical, no, no, no physical fight, not taking up arms against other people made in God's image. For as God's word said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These spiritual forces are what is behind the enemies of truth in all the most powerful institutions of our culture. We are in a spiritual battle and we must engage in the fight. But I'm not talking about a culture war here. What I'm referring to and what the Apostle Paul is referring to here is a fight for our own souls. That we will continue to believe the truth of the gospel and obey the commands of our Lord in the midst of this, uh, comp- uh, this uh, opposition that we are facing in our world. That we would not be swayed from following Christ and the life he has called us to live by his power. So that is the fight. That is the fight we must fight. We must fight the good fight of the faith. 
our main theme from uh, this paragraph here at the end of 1 Timothy 6 is church leaders must fight for their own and their church's spiritual survival. Now in the context of this letter where we find these verses, the main concern is for the church to continue to stay true to the gospel in the face of opposition, uh, to live faithful and, and godly lives. But the letter is addressed to Timothy, who has been left in charge of this church by the Apostle Paul uh, as its pastor or as the primary elder within uh, this church. And so Paul's concern is also for Timothy to be fighting the good fight of the faith for his own soul as well as for his church. Church leaders must guard their own souls first if they are to be effective in helping to guard the souls of their church members. Pastors and elders must fight for their own spiritual survival as well as for the spiritual survival of the churches that they are leading. So these, these verses are both preparing you and calling you to fight. And they do it under three main headings here that we'll make our way through. First is verses 11 and 12, spiritual survival is a fight that we must engage in. There's the command. It's a fight we must engage in. Second, uh, heading here, verses 13 and beginning of verse 15, uh, the end of the fight has already been determined. That's the encouragement. Okay? The end of the fight has already been determined, and so we have encouragement. And then uh, the, end, the second half of verse 15 and verse 16, why will always be victorious in the fight? That's the assurance. So we have the command, the encouragement, and the assurance here uh, in this paragraph. So first, the command. Spiritual survival is a fight that we must engage in. Verses 11 and 12. Look back in your Bibles at those verses. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul begins by pointing his finger figuratively, figuratively right at Timothy here. But as for you, O man of God, he's pointing out this great contrast between Timothy and the false teachers that he referenced back in verses 3 and 5 of chapter 6. Those who were imagining that godliness is a means of financial gain for themselves. These guys had their eyes set on the world. They were looking to worldly wealth, worldly living. They were using the influence that they had over believers within the church to benefit themselves. They were trying to act like they were men of God, but they're really just men of the world. They were in love with this present world, as Paul describes Demas, who fell away from the faith in 2 Timothy 4.10. They believed their hope, their life was in this world, and therefore they pursued this world for all it had to offer. But Timothy is not to be like them. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Flee these things. So this de designation that Paul gives him, man of God, it's a special designation. One that's been used in the Old Testament to describe several prophets like Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha, and, and a few others. 
And this was mainly a title, a uh, description that others used to describe these men, these men who were specifically set apart for the purposes of God. They were known to be men who knew the word of the Lord and who spoke the word of the Lord. They were men that others looked to in times of crisis. God provided these men in specific times and places for God's people. And when God's people are in times of crisis, they desperately need a man of God. So Paul is calling Timothy to be that man, be that man of God for his people. And it's a word here for us as well. Do not follow men who are worldly. Look for and follow a man of God. In order for Timothy to be this man of God for his church, he needed to be set apart from the world. That is why Paul warns him to flee these things. When I was uh, just a boy riding with my dad in his pickup, driving around on the the gravel roads, uh, listening to country music on KWMT AM 540 out of uh, Fort Dodge, Iowa, I learned then uh, from Kenny Rogers You've got to know when to walk away and know when to run. Every soldier that is engaged in the battle knows when it's time to run. Run away. Run away from danger. And for people like you and I who who, who live in this super material and extravagant culture, we need to flee the lure and the trappings of the love of money, and the pleasures of this world. We must flee the temptation to have our hope set in this life and in this world. For if our eyes are only on what this world can offer us, our hearts will lead us to compromise over and over again with the world and the way the world lives. We will be unwilling to sacrifice in order to love others. We will will turn away from, from, from doing the hard things of standing up for righteousness and for truth. If we are to fight the good fight, it will include both the fleeing, running away from sin and temptation, as well as the vigorous pursuit of what is good and faith-building, both in our hearts as well as in those that we love. And so there there are six particular goods or, or traits that the man of God is to vigorously pursue, and it is particularly here where we see that this exhortation isn't only for church leaders. It's not even just for for men. It is for all believers. For all these traits here in verse 11 can find parallels with the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. These are the characteristics that are found pouring out of the lives of those who have the Holy Spirit living within them. Christians are like this. Not perfectly, but if the Holy Spirit has truly taken up residence within you, then your life will reflect these traits more and more as you pursue them. And so what are we to pursue? We're to pursue righteousness or right living according to God's word. Pursue godliness, that is, living in the fear of God, recognizing that all of your relationships, all of your activities And responsibilities are being lived out before the face of God Almighty. 
who will hold you accountable for them. That's the mindset of a person of, of godliness, living as if they know God personally, and that God knows them very well. We're also to pursue faith in God and in his word, believing and then acting out our belief in what he has said by obeying or doing what his word tells us to do. That, that's what faith is. That's what faith does. And then love, loving God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Pursuing what will help and encourage us towards faith and love. We're also to pursue steadfastness here. Steadfastness, which is the strength to endure in the faith. Endure in our commitment to Christ as we encounter very hard things. And then gentleness. Gentleness, which is the trait of being patient and showing kindness to people, especially to difficult people. Every Christian must pursue these traits for survival, especially spiritual leaders within the church. These are the marks of a man or a woman whose life has been transformed by God's grace. And as we see in 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, uh, Paul reminds Timothy there of how the man of God may be complete, may, may be equipped for every good work. How is it that that, that that happens? How is it that the man of God grows and is equipped for living the life that God's called him to live? It is by continuing to fill your mind with the Scriptures, with God's breathed-out words. We are not only to, to be... The, the, the Scriptures will, will not only make us wise for salvation, we're told there, but the scriptures will train you in righteousness as well. We need to be in his word. We need to be listening to his word. Day by day, being instructed, being shaped by God's word. Then in verse 12, the command is for the man of God to, to take hold of, that is to, to grasp, to latch onto the eternal life to which you were called. This is how we fight the good fight of the faith. Pursuing those things, fleeing the, uh, the uh, things of this world, and then grasping hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Now, Paul is not saying that Timothy doesn't have eternal life, and thus he better you know, grab hold of it before it's too late. No, there are some who do need to do that. There are some, like the main character in John Bunyan's classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, they're, they're just living for the pleasures of this world, living in the city of destruction that is the the world that's doomed to judgment and destruction, listening day by day to the lies of the devil, trying to convince them to, to stay you know, in the world, that following Christ just, just isn't worth the trouble. They need to do what that main character named Christian did in that story. They must run away, run away from the city of, of destruction, plugging their ears to the lies and yelling, life, life, eternal life. Running away to life, fleeing to the cross of Christ for salvation. That, that may be what, what, what you need to do if you have not yet come to faith in Christ. But that wasn't what Timothy needed to do here. Timothy had faith in Christ. He had already possessed eternal life through that faith. So what Paul was exhorting him to do was to embrace it, that is, to live out the reality of it. 
as Timothy was facing these challenges in his ministry, and as, as Christians face great times of suffering and failure and doubts with their faith, is, uh, when, when their faith is shaken, they must grasp hold, they must latch on to the reality of eternal life, the eternal life they have in Christ. We must know that our hope is, is not in this life, our hope is not in this world. The hope for the Christian is in the life that is to come. If we are convinced that we have eternal life, that we have this, this life to come in the kingdom of God, in the resurrection, and that death really has no hold on us, then we will willingly serve the Lord and even be willing to suffer for him in this life. Our faith and our love will be steadfast if our hope is set in the life to come and not in this life. If we don't have this hope, well then we will not be distinct at all from the world. We will instead join the world in, in just pursuing our pleasure and joy only in this life. For we will believe that this life is all that we have to live. But Christ our Savior died and rose again to grant us the forgiveness of our sins and to give us eternal life. So grasp hold of that. Grasp hold of that reality. Live like it is true. Secondly, the end of the fight has already been determined. Here's the encouragement. Verses 13 through 15, or the first part of 15 there. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. So the commandment here that the man of God is to keep is simply what he has just been exhorted to do. He must fight the good fight of the faith. He must continue to pursue a godly way of living Again, grasping hold of eternal life at the same time, fleeing from sin and temptation. And Paul calls Timothy to, to this life of faithfulness in the presence of two key witnesses. That is God, the one who gives life to all things, and Christ Jesus. So Paul reminds Timothy and all believers that you, you are never alone in this fight. God will be with you. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, in Hebrews 13, 5. And Christ Jesus, when he gave his, his disciples the commandment or the great commission in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, which Timothy and Paul were both you know, following that commission here, that's what they were doing, making disciples. Well, Christ promised when he, when he, when he gave that commandment that he was, was not sending them out alone he said, I am with you always to the end of the age. So these promises will help you to be steadfast in your faith and obedience. God knows there will be times when you will feel like you are on your own, that, that, that no one knows what you're going through, that no one may even care. You will feel like it isn't worth it. You'll tell yourself, why bother with obedience? What, what good is it doing? But you must persevere in those moments. You must 
continue on. You must fight the good fight and remember you're never alone. He will never turn his back on you. He is here. He is with you. You are walking with him every day. And as it reminds us here, he's coming again. Now, there seems to be some importance given to this good confession that Paul mentions twice here. Paul reminds Timothy that he made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses in verse 12, and that Christ Jesus also made the good confession in his trial before Pontius Pilate, uh, right before he was crucified. So if this is something that Jesus did, and that Paul was commending Timothy for doing, well then it seems that this is a confession that we ought to be making as well. It's good for us to do. So what is this good confession? In John 18, Christ confessed before Pilate that he really is the king, but that his kingdom was not of this world. So he's not just one king among a host of other kings on this world, ruling over this, this small group of people uh, in this one small area of the, of, the, of the world. No, no. His kingdom is not of this world. He is the king over all creation. As he declared to the disciples just before his ascension to sit on the throne in heaven, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is, no one higher. No one with more authority. In heaven and in all creation on earth has been given to the Lord Jesus. So the good confession is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the one that we ought to be learning from and following. Timothy also made a similar confession, most likely when he was baptized. For every Christian, in order to be recognized as a Christian before the church, they must make a public confession of their faith in Christ. That's what baptism is, is, is all about, standing before the church, uh, publicly making the good confession that you believe Jesus is the Christ, he is the King, he is the Savior, and that you are on his side. It is pledging your allegiance to Christ, that you belong to him. So is that something that you have done? If you are a believer, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, he is the King, he is the Savior, and you are following him, and yet you have not publicly professed that faith before the church, well then I would encourage you to do that. You have an opportunity to do that this summer, planning a a service for the summer. So talk to me soon about being baptized. Now those who live in this fallen, re rebellious world with Jesus as the king need to know that the fight of faith will one day come to an end. Here's the encouragement. That the end has already been determined. The king will return. He will come. And when he comes, he will put an end to all opposition. Again, verse 14 and 15. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until... The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. Here we see all that we need to know about the return of Christ. First, 
we can be assured it will happen. He will come. As the angels told the disciples when Christ was taken up into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, this Jesus, they said, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So do you believe this? Does your life reflect the belief that Christ will come again? It seems outrageous, doesn't it? In this material, material world, it seems outrageous. It seems a bit fantastical that a supernatural man will come down out of the skies to establish his rule on the earth. Kind of like how unbelievable it seemed that a virgin could give birth to a son who would then be raised from the dead. So if Christ came the first time, well, he will most assuredly come the second time. He will come again. And secondly, we are to know that it will happen just at the right time. In God's time. Not our time. Not in the time that you may have figured out or, or some other you know, teacher that you've listened to on the radio has, has figured out. It's going to happen at this time. No, no. It's, it's in God's time. He has determined it and he has not revealed to us when it will be. But we can trust that as we fight the good fight, that the fight will one day come to an end. Again, as it says, until. Keep fighting that good fight, keep the commandment unstained, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. So brothers and sisters, keep your eyes fixed on that day. When the fight gets hard, on those days when you would rather just stay in bed, not face the world, remind yourself of his coming. Look forward to his appearing. Know that your fight will come to a glorious end. And finally, why will always be victorious in the fight? Here's the assurance. Why will always be victorious in the fight? So Paul closes this exhortation for the man of God to fight the good fight by reminding him and us that if we do engage in the fight, if we do actually pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, if we genuinely do live for the blessings of the age to come in Christ and not just to make whatever uh, you know, of the re- remaining years we have to live in this life more comfortable, then it is assured that we will be victorious. For God will be with us in the fight, and this is who God is. He who is the blessed and sovereign Lord, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. If you are a believer, then the God who is with you, the God who empowers you, the God who has given you life and then has given you spiritual life, eternal life in Christ, is unrivaled in his sovereignty, in his power. In Psalm 135, it it declares there, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, he it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his 
storehouses. His supremacy is all-encompassing. There is no one greater. No power even comes close. He is the only immortal being in the universe. He had no beginning. He has always been, and he always will be. No one can put him to death. The unapproachable light that he dwells in is the devastatingly bright glory that emanates from him. It is like the sun. No one could survive touching or walking on the sun because our mortal bodies couldn't handle the heat or the brightness of even getting close to it. And with God, our mortal bodies, which are marred by sin, could, could not even withstand bearing the glory emanating from God. We would just be incinerated by it. The only occasions in the scriptures where a sinful man was said to have seen God is just, just those occasions where they saw just a glimpse of the backside of his glory. Or when God humbled himself and took the form of a man in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's, let's think a little more about, about this glory, about the bigness, the greatness of God. The sun. Think about the sun. One of the things that I love about this time of year is, is, is the amazing sunsets we're given in the spring. Uh, from our dining room, room window over there, we, we, we love watching the sunset as it falls behind uh, the elevator grain bends here just west of us. But that, but that glowing sphere in the sky, of course, isn't setting at all. It is, it is still. And it is the earth that is turning as our planet rotates and orbits around the sun, held into place by the sun's amazing gravitational pull that doesn't just hold our planet in place, but it holds eight other planets in place as well. I'm in my 40s. I was trained to know that Pluto is a planet, okay? And that sun is 864,400 miles in diameter. It is 109 times bigger than the Earth. It is so large that 1.3 million planet Earths could fit inside of it. And yet, cosmologists will tell you, uh, our sun is just an, an average-sized star, just one star in the Milky Way galaxy, which contains about 100 billion other stars. And of course, our, our, our galaxy isn't the only galaxy with 100 billion stars out there. The last es estimates are that there are somewhere between 100 and 200 billion other galaxies, each with around 100 billion stars in them. So have you ever considered just the magnitude of all that is in the universe. How big, how, how awesome, how powerful would the being have to be who created all of that? Who sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. Like making galaxies with 100 billion stars in them. Genesis 1, 16 and 17 tells us, And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. 
So if you are a believer, then this one, this God, this is the one whom you have a personal relationship with. You know him. You are able to speak with him. You have been given promises by him. This, this God who, who set the sun in its place and all the other galaxies, billions and billions of other suns in the expanse of the heavens. This is the God who is speaking to you today through his word, calling you to fight. And if he is with you in this fight, if he is for you, then who can be against you? Take courage. If you engage in the fight, if you endure in it, you will be victorious in your battle against sin. You will receive the crown of righteousness in the end if you pursue, if you go after these things. But if you are not a believer, if you are not currently in the fight, well, then you also need to know this God cannot be ignored. You cannot avoid him. You will never be able to overpower him. You, you will need to deal with him. He is the one who gave you life. He is the one that you will have to give an account to for what you did with the life he gave you. You will meet him. And it will be terrifying if you have not come to know him as your father, as your friend, as your savior. So join the fight. Flee these things. Turn away from pursuing your own glory and your own comfort. Turn away from your love of money and this world and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, and love that can only be found in knowing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Make the good confession that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of the living God, that he is, in fact, your Savior and your only hope in life and in death is in him, and you will be saved. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would work, you would so work in our hearts and lives that we would desire to know you even better, that more and more we would pursue these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Lord, help us to fight the good fight of the faith. And for any in here, Lord, who have been avoiding you, who have been dismissing you, who have not been listening to what you have said in your word, Lord, I pray that as they leave here this morning, that your word would rest upon their souls in such a way that they would have to deal with you, they would have to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.